This is an ABC podcast. Did you go to a single sex school? Maybe you're at an all boys or all girls school now. Do you rate it? Because more and more single sex schools are transitioning to co-ed, taking on boys and girls. So is splitting up students in this way a thing of the past? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. We're diving into the school's debate. Also coming up, we check out Ukraine's underground rave scene. You're going to hear how the war is affecting youth culture. But let's start with the big story of the day. Hack. Scott Morrison owes the Australian people an apology for undermining our parliamentary democracy. On Triple J. Yeah, the story that keeps on giving. Remember those bombshell revelations? Scott Morrison secretly signed himself up to five extra ministries when he was PM. Pretty spicy already, but today it got a whole lot more interesting. One of the government's top lawyers released a big report into whether what Scott Morrison did was legal or not. And the Solicitor General really got into it. He basically said Scott Morrison didn't break the law, but what he did totally goes against the way our parliament and democracy is supposed to work. Didn't hold back. The PM, Anthony Albanese, has announced an inquiry into this whole situation today. This is not going away anytime soon, so we do need to get an update. Hacks political reporter Georgia Hitch is with us now in our Parliament House studio. G'day, Georgia. Busy day in the press gallery. <laughs> Always. Always. Always busy. We've got, but yes. Yeah, and, I'm, and I can imagine you guys are kind of running around trying to get on top of everything. But before we break down what was in that report, can you give us a bit of a Spark Notes recap? of how we got here. Absolutely, because so much has happened in the last week since this kind of was first revealed. So basically what has come out, what came out last week was that in early 2020, so right at the beginning of the pandemic, Scott Morrison basically made himself the Joint Minister for Health and the Joint Minister for Finance. And at the time, you know, the, the reasoning behind this was that it was a backup plan in case the actual health or the actual finance minister got really sick or they died from COVID, which back then was was kind of a real fear. Yeah. So most people in the, in the last week or so have been like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That argument makes sense. But then what we also found out was that kind in the first half of last year, he then also asked the Governor-General to give him the powers over Treasury, Home Affairs and Industry Sciences, Resources and Energy, which is one big portfolio. Now, none of these are really linked to the pandemic in the way that health and finance are. So those raised a few more eyebrows. And that last one, Resources, is the only one where we know he actually made a decision and used these ministerial powers. And what he did was he overruled the then Resources Minister, Keith Pitt, and he rejected this super controversial gas exploration project, which was going to happen just off the New South Wales coast, if it got approved, called PEP 11. So, you know, that that has people asking questions as well around the decision to step in to overrule somebody that he actually chose to be his minister in that portfolio. But I guess the even bigger question that has dominated this whole saga is this one around secrecy. So, you know, not only did the opposition or the public know that this was happening, some of Morrison's own ministers, including the ones that were in these jobs that he's supposed to have, you know, in his inner sanctum and his inner circle, they didn't know that he'd secretly made himself their equal either. Anyway, so this all came out last week or over the last seven days or so. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, described it, you know, as unprecedented and extraordinary. And he immediately asked the Solicitor General, who's the second highest uh, lawyer in the government after the Attorney General, to look at specifically, he, this was the question, whether Morrison making himself the Resources Minister was legal and then to report back ASAP. Oh, so what was the answer? What did the advice from the Solicitor General actually say? 
Well, interestingly, so it opens up and says, this is what I was asked, and the answer is yes. And he goes on to um, provide his official advice, which is pretty scathing, I've got to say. It's in a very I'm a government lawyer type way. <laughs> uh, but Stephen Donoghue, who is the Solicitor General, he kind of goes on for about 20 pages or so to talk about why, you know, even though what Scott Morrison did was legal, why it's not okay, and what you said before around why it go, kind of undermines the functioning of our parliament. So firstly, the Solicitor General raised some pretty le- basic logistical issues, like, you know, if you keep most of these appointments secret, uh, then you can't actually do anything with them. So it kind of defeats the purpose of making yourself a joint minister in the first place if the heads of the department and the other minister don't know that you've done it. And that also if there's more than one minister and the other one doesn't know about the first one, then how do you actually split up responsibilities and know who's in charge of what? But the part where he is definitely the most direct is that if the public and the opposition and members of the government don't know who the minister is or who is making the decisions, then how can they ever actually really be held accountable? How do you, if you don't know who's doing it, how can you make sure, you know, hold their feet to the fire and scrutinise those decisions? And how can people actually trust the government when they don't know who's doing what? So, you know, for example, this is one of, I would say, more the direct lines in the advice it says an unpublicized appointment to administer a department therefore fundamentally undermines not just the proper functioning of responsible government but also the relationship between the ministry and the public service okay so clearly he's not a fan of what scott morrison did so what's the solution for the future like did the advice go down that route at all it did as well so the solicitor general went through a few ways the government could make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again all of which kind of required different levels of work from the government so one for instance was to make sure that the ministry lists that are tabled in Parliament and are made public, they include any appointments made under this particular section of the Constitution that Scott Morrison used. Or he also suggests, you know, maybe we could just make it that each department has to list all of their ministers on their website. So it's nice and clear, easy to access for the public as well. Uh, Another suggestion he has goes a step further and that's about introducing some kind of legislation. That means all appointments like this have to be made public or put on a public register of some kind. And another option he suggested is that the Governor-General who signed off on all of these, and I should also mention in the advice, uh, the Solicitor-General notes that the Governor-General really had um, no choice, that you have to act on the government of the day, but that the government Governor-General could make these things public like he does for normal ministerial appointments as well. And this is actually something that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, says he's already asked his department to look at doing. So that might be the first thing that comes into play is that if this happens again, the Governor-General has to make it public. Okay. Anthony Albanese spoke after this was all released. Um, He's announced this inquiry. Do we know much about what that's going to look like? We don't know a huge amount about this inquiry yet because the government hasn't really worked out what it wants. Cabinet only met today and decided that this was kind of the path that they wanted to take. Anthony Albanese did say, though, it's not going to be a political political inquiry, I should say, uh, but that instead it's going to be led by kind of a high-ranking hotshot legal person to get to the bottom of really how and why this all came about, because that's not what they asked the Solicitor General to look into. So kind of answering more of those questions that still remain. The Greens have called for an inquiry with Royal Commission-like powers, which basically means that they'll be able to force people to give evidence and force them to hand over documents as well. So it's a bit more powerful than maybe some other kinds of parliamentary inquiries. Timing-wise, we don't have anything concrete other than the Prime Minister saying he just doesn't want it to drag on. He wants to get the answers and then really act on them. So Anthony Albanese, he went through a bit more of what he wants to see the inquiry look like a bit earlier. And just quickly, Georgia, what about Scott Morrison? Has he said anything new today? 
He did. He put out a fresh statement this afternoon saying that he's seen the advice from the Solicitor General uh, and had pointed to the sections where the Solicitor General did say that what Scott Morrison did was valid and that there's no consistent historical rules around making appointments like this public. He also said that he's reflected over the last week and that he, I quote, appreciates the concerns that have been raised and that he regrets any offence that he's caused, but that really the decisions he made as PM were made in good faith during the pandemic. He he kind of um, has couched, I guess, support for any changes to the to the rules. He says that he would support a genuine process and he would help a genuine process to seeing changes made. So make of that what you will. Mm, very interesting. I know we're going to be hearing a lot more about this. Political reporter Georgia Hitch, thank you very much for that update. Thanks, Dave. And we're going to get a bit more into the significance of today's development now because we need to kind of analyse, you know, what all this means and what we could see in the months ahead. So with us now is Dr Jill Shepherd, a political scientist at ANU. G'day, Jill. Thanks for coming hey. on Hack. Hey, Dave. So this report from the Solicitor General found Scott Morrison didn't act against the law, but as Georgia said, still really scathing. Does that mean that the law needs to be changed? Well, what we're sort of dealing with here is not necessarily the law, it's convention. We're throwing around all these terms in this, you know, the last few days uh, and we expect that people understand what they're, t- you know, what we're talking about. And that's really unfair, right? Most of your listeners will just be thinking, well, what does responsible government mean? What are conventions around this? And the idea of responsible government is central to this. Now, that means that we don't have a, pri- we don't have a president, right? Now, everyone knows that. Mm. We have a prime minister. But the prime minister only holds his or her job at the whim of the House of Representatives, the lower house in the parliament. If they withdraw support, right, if a majority of the House of Representatives says, we're not really backing the PM anymore, we want this government to, you know, to to leave, uh, they can do that. Now, what that would mean is that members of the Liberal Party would have had to say, hey, Scott Morrison, we don't support you anymore. And that never happens in Australia. But it is a fundamental part of, of the way that our our government operates in Australia. We don't have this president who oversees everything. So the idea of responsible government is that the the government of the day, what we call the executive, is responsible, is like has to answer to, to the House of Representatives. And by not telling the House of Representatives who was actually who in the government, uh, that absolutely undermines that kind of chain of responsibility. So that's specifically what we're talking about there. And I can't, you know, I can beg people to care and, you know, so many people will still not care because it is all pretty boring. But it does have, uh, like, great importance for our fundamental system. Well, yeah, and I imagine there were probably a lot of people thinking, oh, you know, I just, I don't understand it. And to be honest, it seemed for a while even politicians in the media were struggling to understand what was happening here. Has this kind of revealed how basic our understanding of our own political system is? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Scott Morrison appreciated uh, the damage he was doing to the institution. Uh, I think probably Labor know now because they were well briefed on it. I think there's still a lot of MPs in in Canberra at the moment who aren't quite sure what all this fuss is about. Uh, But as George just said at the start, this is all about secrecy, right? We we depend on transparency in our system. uh, and, And we've usually, you know, sort of held pretty high standards in regards to transparency. This is like new lows, right? So uh, it does, you know, suggest that maybe voters were right 
in thinking there was something up about the old government. Uh, we know that uh, attitudes towards Scott Morrison and lack of trust in Scott Morrison was like the strongest cause for, for people to move away from the Liberal government uh, between the 2019-2022 election. Uh, so voters got that bang on. People in the media, uh, people, you know, sort of inside Canberra seem to have a much sort of worse sense, I guess, of the stench that was coming out of this government. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm chatting to Dr Jill Shepherd from ANU about this big report into Scott Morrison's secret ministry appointments that's come out today. Look, we're getting some messages through. Somebody says ScoMo needs to lose his pension. Another person says, I'm looking forward to when the Labor government starts focusing on running the country instead of just going after Morrison. Jill, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is saying he's going to launch this inquiry, even though we've had some pretty clear advice from the Solicitor General that, you know, spells things out pretty clearly. Is this just a political move to keep the story in the headlines longer? Because obviously the more we talk about this, the more attention is focused on that, the less scrutiny, I guess, there is on the current government. Yeah, look, I think this is a pretty cynical ploy on the government's part. This is, you know, it is important. Uh, what Scott Morrison did, and it has real consequences for our system of, of parliamentary democracy, but it is also kind of inside baseball. I think what happen, what comes out of any inquiry now uh, will just confirm what the Solicitor General has said today. We'll never have to think about the Solicitor General again, most of us. You know, we can move on. We'll never think about responsible government again. Uh, and future Prime Ministers and Ministers will be warned not to be as, you know, shifty as Morrison was in this regard. And just quickly, I mean, we heard a lot about a federal ICAC in the election campaign. Some politicians are for it, others, you know, dead against it, it seems. Do you think that, you know, this is going to really heighten the want for something like that, like that voters are going to be pushing for that? I think voters are sick of of what they see coming out of Canberra. We know that. We've got 30 years of survey data that shows that satisfaction uh, with the system is, you know, at all-time lows. Trust in politicians is at all-time lows. Uh, We see that in shifts, uh, you know, huge vote shifts from the major parties to the independents. Uh, You know, the writing's on the wall for for both major parties, and they haven't shown any real inclination to deal with that. Uh, So I... You know, based on past behaviour, I can't see much changing in the next term or two uh, of this government. But at least, you know, at least some of these things are starting to to see the light of day. And again, I just I can't reinforce enough how much voters get this right. It's really interesting stuff, Dr. Jill Shepherd from ANU. I appreciate you coming in, explaining all of it because it's complicated. Like you say, a lot of us um, don't really think we need to be taking all of this in all of the time, but, you know, when there's big probes into it, we do need to know what's going on. Thank you so much. Cheers. You're listening to Hack. Are single-sex schools better for students? On Triple J. Yeah, that is the question. Right. For decades, experts have been doing research into this, trying to figure out, do students do better in a single-sex or co-ed environment? Maybe you went to a single-sex school. Did you love it? Or maybe you hated it? You found it made things harder when you were thrown into classes at uni? Get in touch, one 555 You can message in as well, 0439 the world is changing and we're seeing more and more of these single-sex schools deciding to switch it up, to go co-ed, and it comes after a lot of really confronting revelations about culture at some of these schools. Like, you'll remember a lot came out when Chanel Contos started that petition asking for students to share their stories of sexual assault. 
Well, Cranbrook, which is one of Australia's most prestigious boys' schools, is one of the latest to announce that it's going co-ed in the next few years. It's employing all sorts of experts to help with that transition. So what kind of difference is it all going to make? Let's ask an expert. Dr George Varian's with us now. He's with Monash Uni's School of Education, Culture and Society. Hey, George, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, thanks for having me along. There's been heaps of research into this around the world for years. What it what does the research tell us? Like, do students do better in co-ed or single-sex schools? Look, you know, there's research that shows that girls can suffer social disadvantages from being in a co-ed uh, school uh, and their learning needs can be hampered depending on how co-education is handled. But they also believe that boys benefit from girls being around. Uh, but I guess these effects in, and beliefs are subject to expectations and norms in schools that also influence them. So I guess like the previous uh, um, academic, you know, it's never really a simple case of something being better than something else. If we start to think more holistically about how uh, some of these effects are actually produced by the systems that they're, you know, that they're in. We're getting some messages through on our text line. Dan from Gosford says, I went to an all-boys school. The brotherhood and camaraderie you built lasts a lifetime. I'm 30 now and all my best mates are my schoolmates. I don't hear that happening with kids going to co-ed schools. Maddie says, I went to an all-girls school and a co-ed school in Canberra. The all-girls school was horrible. So much bullying and revenge porn went on. I refused to go. It was that bad. That was many years ago. It left a bad taste in my mouth. I also went to a co-ed school and absolutely loved it. It was such a great environment. So as you say, people have different experiences. When we look at single-sex schools, some are these elite private schools like Cranbrook and they usually have pretty strong academic records, George. How much of that's to do with how the school is structured as opposed to who's going to the school? Like, you know, generally it's probably people who are more privileged, um, come from, you know, um, richer backgrounds and things like that. Look, we we know that uh, social background is the key predictor of success right in education and future success as well and so uh these schools uh like crime book for instance as you mentioned have you know precisely zero students in the lower quartile of social ec- educational advantage right and 78 percent in the highest quartile so in a way you'd expect this asymmetry to be seen in its achievements so uh you know uh when you adjust your statistics to take this advantage into account you don't see any difference in the outcome so I guess perhaps more importantly, parents, I guess, believe that schools matter uh, and these types of schools matter for a variety of reasons. And and some of them also are around, you know, the moral panics around values and traditions, uniforms and so on that you see the private schools emphasise. Some more messages coming through. Sonia says, talking to men is like a foreign language some days. She went to an all-girls school. Another person says, going to an all-girls school is the best decision for me. I focused much better than what I assume I would have with boys in the class. The main focus, George, um, for students and parents um, in the past has been academic success, right? How important is social success, though? Is that starting to be something that people put a lot more attention on? I think that's that's the case increasingly. I think that's the a question for parents and I as well. And uh, you know, like for example, parents choosing a private education uh, is is not just about uh, education success. Like I mentioned, it's about you know the values, religious values, the morals uh, that they perceive the private system to provide. I think this kind of speaks to the focus of parents on you know chasing values as much as they're chasing educational outcomes. 
There are these stereotypes that people would have heard that generally boys are more disruptive, they need more discipline, they take up more time. Does the research back that up? I think these stereotypes are quite damaging to young people and the diversity we, you know, we do see among young boys. Uh, and I think that some of that, that the research shows that some of this is actually socially produced through our expectations, you know, our, the norms that we have handed down, like the, the boys will be boys discourses. We, you know, we expect boys to be more disruptive, but, you know, the research shows that uh, girls can be just as disengaged with boys. You know, they can just, they can be just as uh, affected by the, the notion of being uncool to be a high achiever uh, as boys are. So so I think what we see is these stereotypes are produced also by our, you know, our norms and our, our kind of like biases towards the genders uh, rather than the realities of, of the, you know, that there are really that much difference between boys and girls. And for those students who are at single sex schools, like, for instance, like Cranbrook that are making the transition, how difficult is that going to be? Like, are they going to have to get used to a whole different teaching environment? Um, is, is, is it a really tricky thing to navigate? I think, I think young people are more adaptable than we probably give them credit. I think the challenge will be for how the schools, the teachers, the administrators manage the move. I think, you know, it's such, it will be a shift in uh, and a rethink of their everyday practice. And I think it's really, if you think about it, it's not going to be simple and it really needs to be well resourced so that, you know, teachers have the time to, to think through how they can restructure their practice and think differently about the way they might incorporate, uh, you know, uh, teaching girls as well as boys if they've been in an all boys environment. So, George, do you think single-sex schools are going to be a thing of the past? Like in a hundred years, we'll be looking back, going, "What was all that about?" Well, it would, you know, it would seem to be the case. These schools are, you know, after all, market-facing enterprises, and I think the shift in expectations in the community, the ongoing, you know, the ongoing visibilities of the Me Too moment, the Chanel contest revelations, that type of thing, will slowly bring about these uh, changes. I think. Um, but, you know, you want to be careful. You don't want a situation where girls are just being brought in to fix, you know, the perceived boy problem either. So so I think this is this is where, you know, it might be a thing of the past, but I don't know to what extent. And I, I suspect, uh, you know, it will be problematic to think that simply going co-ed will mean that the schoolboy misconduct is just going to disappear. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, we're hearing comments backing that up from a lot of people on our text line. Dr. George Varian from Monash University, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And to some of those messages now, somebody says single-sex schools will never socially prepare you for the real world. Another person says single-sex schools don't cater to trans or non-binary students. Another person, I went to an all-girls school and co-ed. Girls' school was so much better than the co-ed school. Boys benefit from girls being around, but the girls benefit from no boys, roughly housing, uh, rough housing and being disruptive. And a teacher says, I believe there's a place for both co-ed and single-stream schools. It should always be based on the needs, personality and wishes of the individual student. Honestly, I hate the one versus the other battle. Very interesting points there. Hack. I was awake since Saturday morning till Sunday morning. Uh, wait, it's Monday today. It's Monday today. On Triple J. You know, we've talked a fair bit this year about the war in Ukraine, the impact it's had on Ukrainians who've been forced out of their homes, the death, the destruction. 
And while so many young Ukrainians have had to flee to places like Australia, heaps are still here, are still there, sorry. The war has had a pretty brutal impact on youth culture in the country though, like the music scene. Some are desperate to keep that alive. Our reporter April McLennan caught up with a guy called Eugene about what the wars meant for him. They see like people on some way dancing and they always say it looks like these people dance to forget the pain of war. That's 25-year-old Eugene Skribnik. He's from Slovyansk. It's a town on the eastern edge of Ukraine in the Donetsk region. Slovyansk was seized by Russian-backed military in 2014, only to be reclaimed by Ukrainian forces just months later. And it was after this invasion that Eugene realised the area was lacking youth culture, like there weren't any clubs or bars, literally nowhere to have a boogie. So he decided to create Shum Rave. They host some pretty cool parties. Shum means noise all out. And in uh, Slavyansk, you are not able to make noise after 11 of evening because every place is really close to home of ordinary people. And we started Shumrave and called this like this because we found a place where we can make a noise all night long. Like it's freedom. It's place where they can just live and like be yourself. It's a place like without judgment. At the first rave, they decided to play hard techno. And Eugene says there were a few reasons for that. When the war was in Slavyansk in 2014, the Russian checkpoint was near my house. And every evening it was sounds like someone shooting some machine gun or probably some artillery, small stuff, and carry a little bit. But also I started to like the sound. And when I discovered the techno, it was sounds like similar for me. He was hoping to throw heaps more parties, but after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February, that dream was put on hold. Thousands of people have been killed, and Eugene says there's no way you'd want to throw a party at the moment. It's like full-scale invasion. My city now under fire. It's really dangerous to be in Slovyansk now because uh, Russia is bomb city like every day and you didn't know what's going happen. Many people from Donbass, DJs, music artists, they lost everything like places where they can make music, places where they can make live. Around 100 members of the Ukrainian electronic music scene have signed an open letter and they're calling on the community to cancel all cooperation with Russian artists, promoters, clubs and organisations who don't take action to stop the Russian military invasion. The letter reads... We, the representatives of the music community, see the actions of Russian promoters, DJs and artists who keep on holding events and performing while the military of their country is bombing our cities. We, the representatives of the Ukrainian music community, are asking you to not stay aside and to fight against Russian aggression together with us. Eugene reckons the music scene in Ukraine will sound real different without the Russian influence. For some people, it was normal, for example, to invite a Russian musician to Ukraine. For me, it wasn't normal because for me, this war started eight years ago. And it's really important because 
people must understand uh, Russia is invaders, they are the killers. And uh, this letter was about this. Eugene's now in Kiev and he's invited fellow musicians from the Donbass region to join him in creating a various artists' album. All profits from the sale of the 17-track album are actually being donated to the Ukrainian force. We call this album Friends. And it's called Friends because after a full-scale invasion, uh, the typical morning starts when you message to your friends and ask them, how are you? It's just simple words. When someone asks you, how are you? You message, okay, but like, I'm not okay. My sitting under the fire. I don't know how to live. I can die in any time, but the friends become like more close to you. And a lot of people who didn't know you, you don't know these people, but uh, this become they become your friends in this hard time. So it was dedicated to friends. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan speaking with Eugene Skripnik from Ukraine. Really interesting story there. And we will keep you bringing you updates from Ukraine as the months go on. All sorts of um, parts of life that are being affected by this ongoing conflict. Some really crazy stuff happening. We've got lots of messages coming through, text messages on the story we had a bit earlier about um, single-sex schools as opposed to co-ed schools. Somebody says, I went to an all-girls school. Segregating girls and boys is unnatural and unhealthy. I didn't know how to have a platonic relationship with the opposite sex until after school. So bad for your life after school. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.